0: We have a big day on Rising. Here to discuss a wide range of issues surrounding COVID-19 and the growing concerns about monkeypox is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. Pleasure.
0: Uh, the pleasure is ours. We wanted to first discuss the BA5 sub-variant of Omicron, now the dominant strain in the country. I believe it is the strain, or it's believed to be the strain that President Biden uh, contracted. What can you tell us about the development of variant-specific vaccines and more therapeutics?
1: Well, the therapeutic situation is uh, a little bit more easy than trying to follow the variant, because Most of these variants don't change in a way to evade the antiviral effect, for example, of the drug that's most commonly used called Paxlovid, which has been shown uh, by a clinical trial to have a high degree of effectiveness, in this case close to 90%, in preventing the progression to severe disease leading to hospitalizations and deaths. As we go from one variant to another, it becomes difficult to be able to predict precisely what that variant would look like. But given that we are in a BA five mode, in the sense of more than now 80% of all the isolates are BA five and 15 to 16 or so percent is BA four, which is a close relative of BA five. The general trend will be that as we approach the fall, that the FDA has made the authorization that they would be looking at a what we call a bivalent, which means a vaccine boost for the fall that would be comprised of BA5 together with the ancestral strain Mm -hmm. vaccine. And that's the reason they call it a bivalent, because there are two components of that. That's a pretty good um, estimation of what we will be seeing in the fall. There's always the possibility that you're going to have the evolution of another variant and hopefully if that occurs it will vary off from the BA-5 only slightly in the sense of being a uh-huh. sub-lineage sub of it and not something entirely different. But that's the situation you always face when you're dealing with a moving target. But the best guess right now would be, as we get into the fall, you'd want to boost with a BA-5 so that if you get BA-5 or something closely related to that, you will enhance the immunity against that particular variant.
2: Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us. It's actually a huge privilege to be talking to you. Um, You know, speaking of a moving target, we know so much more now than we did in March of 2020. I'm wondering if you could go back to March of 2020 and start over with the pandemic response, what would you do differently?
1: Well, you know, if I went back to 2020 and knew what I knew in 2020, I wouldn't do much differently. If I knew in 2020 Mm -hmm. what I know now, we would do a lot differently Mm -hmm. because back then, we were not sure of a number of things. We were not sure really of the complete modality of transmission. We knew and started to get information at the end of January and the beginning of February that this virus could spread uh, from an asymptomatic person. We did not fully appreciate the extent of that. We know now two and a half years later, that anywhere from 50 to 60% of the transmission occur from someone without symptoms, either someone who never will get symptoms or someone who is in the pre-symptomatic stage. Had we known that then, the insidious nature of spread in the community would have been much more of an alarm and there would have been much, much more stringent Uh, restrictions in the sense of very, very heavy, encouraging people to wear masks, physical distancing, or what have you. We also were not fully aware, as we are now, that this virus is also spread by aerosol spread, which we did not fully realize at the time. There were some hints of that. So again, there are a lot of things, had we had the knowledge that we have now, that we would have done a bit differently you know
0: it 's interesting you bring up uh, the mass, and I know some places l a county for one is interested in bringing them back uh, right now, but based on you know what i 'm hearing, many experts I think have conceded that at least the cloth masks are not doing virtually anything to stop uh, the spread I, I think there 's you know questions increasingly questions about whether these restrictions are making much of a difference, and then some of them are, you know, quite uh, quite difficult for, for people with disabilities, for children having to wear them um, in schools. What is your view of ongoing uh, restrictions? Do you still think um, they're necessary? Would you still recommend those types of things, masks, you know, some social distancing, some shutdowns, given that you know we're going to be facing this th- this disease at this level of contagiousness for some time?
1: Well for this level of contagiousness but not necessarily for this level of viral dynamics and circulation and that's the thing that you really have to make sure you distinguish when you're when you're describing it for example, the CDC has on their website a map of the country with different color codes green yellow orange and red and when you are in a zone or a or a or a county state or a city that has a very high level of dynamic of viral circulation the cdc would recommend strongly that you wear a mask in a congregate indoor setting and that would include schools places of work uh, anything that brings people together in a closed uh, environment that is good public health practice the cdc does not mandate anything. What they do is they make recommendations because at the local level, you may have a very different situation in one region of the country or one county or one city or one state, very different from another region, city or state. And that's the reason why the CDC serves as an analysis of the underground situation and a recommendation. Whether something becomes a requirement is something that's decided at the local level. With regard to your point about masks, you're absolutely correct. One of the questions that was asked just a moment ago of things that might have been done differently had we known what we know now back then, I think the masking situation is one that is really critical that would have been done differently. First of all, we did not fully appreciate that a well-fitted K95 or NK95 mask is much, much better than a cloth mask. And to wear a good mask, the data now are very clear that masks are very good at preventing both the acquisition of and transmission of infection. There was a lot of conflicting data uh, back then as we were in the early months of 2020. So the recommendations were a bit confusing about whether to wear a mask or not, whether you should wear a cloth mask or what have you. Right now, we are very, very clear that masks do work in prevention of acquisition and transmission. But you've got to get a well-fitted mask that has of a high quality. And the two we know are high quality are an N95 or a KN95.
2: Dr. Fauci, why was mass antibody testing never part of your COVID response? Why was natural immunity never taken seriously? And do you consider that to be an error?
1: Well, you gotta be careful. What do you mean by natural immunity never taken seriously? You're making an assumption that I can't answer the question because I'm not sure where you're going with it. What do you mean by not taken seriously? We were always aware that if you get infected, you have a degree of protection against reinfection. What was not clear then, but what is very clear now, that the protection against natural infection, as well as vaccination, wanes over a period of time. That is very, very different from some of the other infections that we deal with, such as measles, and polio and the ancient smallpox, where when you get infected or you get vaccinated, the level of protection is measured in decades, if not a lifetime. So the people who were talking about natural immunity were making an assumption in some part, and not everyone, that once you get infected, you were essentially protected very, very well for an extended period of time. Then we found out that if you get infected and vaccinated, that that hybrid immunity is much better than infection alone or vaccine alone. These were all things that evolved in our understanding of them because we are indeed dealing with a moving target And there was a lot of back and forth and criticisms and things that you were, I believe, referring to in your question to me that in many respects is not fair because if you have a stable, static target, then you can start talking about what your approach, what your recommendation was, was it right or wrong. But when that target continues to change with new variants that elude protection both from prior infection as well as from vaccination, then you've got to move along and be flexible and open-minded enough to deal with what you're dealing with in the real world is a very elusive target.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I guess the the um, how I would respond to that is the perception that there's an openness to discussion and debate, or that it's okay to criticize the CDC or to disagree with them. W- w- it was certain w- was not a lot of people didn't feel like that, or they felt like if they did that, they're somehow anti-science or they're being called out mm. as on the side of the virus or, or that kind of thing. Do you do you hear that criticism? And you know, what do you yeah. make more broadly of the CDC's? Um, respond, you know, we ha- we've been very critical of the, the testing uh, screw up from the beginning with the CDC. And now we have monkeypox. And it seems like, once again, the federal health uh, officials weren't totally ready for this pandemic. I know, for instance, the FDA had some issue with importing the vaccines because they hadn't inspected the, the facility. The, exactly the kinds of errors that, you know, were made in the early days of COVID.
1: Well, first of all, I, I can only speak for myself. And I can tell you that I have always had an open mind to the comments of the community. I've developed that 40-plus years ago in my original interaction with the activist community with HIV. I always listen and take what I hear from the community. Sometimes that's incorrect and misguided, but sometimes it gives you important information and feedback from the real world so I can only comment about how I look at things. When people criticize, I always take criticism seriously, analyze it and see if there's anything I can learn and do better from the criticism. Sometimes it's outlandish, but sometimes there's a kernel of truth in that. So I have been making my own approach to this, which I've been doing now for decades, to always keep an open mind, which I still do to this day. Well go go ahead, Bachel.
2: Um, I I, I so appreciate what you're saying, doctor, about the moving target. Um, At the same time, there were um, authorities that made different decisions than the CDC's recommendations, for example, on school closures, and they did not see higher levels of child mortality when it comes to COVID. And meanwhile, the schools that did close down were now seeing just disastrous levels of learning loss among poor children, children of color, mental health crisis. I wonder if you would recommend locking down schools if you had to do it all over again?
1: Well, you know, again, it's uh, first of all, I didn't recommend locking anything down. You're you're asking me questions. You're talking about the CDC is the public health agency Mm -hmm. that uses their epidemiologists and their science-based approach to make recommendations. Clearly, whenever you close schools, there are collateral effects that are negative. I have always been well aware of that. And I have always felt, and you go back and look at my statements, that we need to do everything we can to keep the schools open and safe. And by safe means, if you need to wear masks in that, wear a mask, get better ventilation, surround the children with people who are vaccinated if a vaccine is available to help protect the children. Again, I have been on the record of saying that, always try to the best of your ability to keep the children in school, but in a safe environment. Locally, a decision is often made when there is so much infection to close the school, but I would always see that as a last resort. And I have always felt that way. Uh
0: One other thing uh, we wanted to get your perspective on. I know you said uh, recently and you said several times that um, you are open to the idea of the lab leak theory. You think it should be investigated like any other. But I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, gain-of-function research, of which you've been uh, a foremost Public advocate, and I I totally understand that we, you know, don't know that gain-of-function research had anything to do with the emergence of COVID. But my question is, you know, what are actually, what do you think are the benefits of doing that kind of research? Because as far as I can tell, it's not. We did not get the vaccines or therapeutics from doing that kind of research. So if there's no real upside and there are risks involved, you know, why do you think we should fund it?
1: Well, I think it's such a complicated situation that people use that terminology, gain a function, in a way that is not applicable in so many ways to what's being done. What you want to do is that sometimes you have to examine in the field and look at pathogens that are out there, and you need to work with them in a way to give great insight into understanding and ultimately protecting against the natural. Occurrence. We put guardrails up, and there have been very clear guardrails of what can and cannot be done by committees that have nothing to do. These are outside committees that were put together without input from so many different sources OSTP, the National Academies, and they came up with what the guardrails would be to be doing work on bat viruses and viruses that have been shown clearly to have evolved from the environment with SARS-CoV-2 and with MERS. You always got to be very careful when you're dealing with pathogens. And that's the reason why we put the P3CO, which is the Pathogens of Pandemic Potential Care and Oversight, which were guardrails that were set up by independent groups, and we've followed those. There's a lot of misconception about gain of function as a broad general category, as opposed to in a specific situation to examine whether or not the benefit for understanding more about the evolution of these outweighs any risks, and the risks that are taken are under the guardrails that I'm talking about. I want to make one point because you bring it up, is that people talk about the research that was funded by the NIH. If you look at the viruses that were studied there, and we never get the chance to articulate that, usually because people interrupt and already start talking about gain-of-function, gain-of-function, if you look at the viruses that were studied, and published in the peer review literature. Any card-carrying virologist who knows about viral evolution will tell you that it would be molecularly impossible for those viruses that were worked on to be turned into SARS-CoV-2 by accident or by intent. They are evolutionarily so far from SARS-CoV-2 that that would be impossible. Yet, when you talk about research that was funded by the NIH, people make an inappropriate conflation of those experiments with SARS-CoV-2. Now, having said that, do I keep an open mind that, in fact, somewhere beyond anything that the NIH has done with funding competent Chinese scientists, Could there have been a lab leak as a possibility? The answer is, of course, apropos of what I said a moment ago, I always keep an open mind, but you also got to look at what evolutionary virologists have been studying and published in the peer review literature. Something as recently, literally, that's going to come out soon from a a whole group of qualified people still say That although you keep an open mind, the most likely evolution of SARS-CoV-2 is a natural jumping of species. Again, always keeping an open mind, but you've got to go with the data. And that's what I've always done. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Dr. Fauci, uh, we really appreciate your time, you coming to Rising and giving your perspective on these issues, which we discuss frequently. We are so grateful. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Good to be with you.
2: Thank you so much, doctor.
0: Bacha Angar-Sargon is back with me to kick off the week, and I'm so excited to see you, Bacha.
2: I'm so excited to be back here with you, Ravi. We have a fantastic show for you guys today. We'll discuss Pelosi's potential trip to Taiwan. Plus, Liz Wolf is going to break down how Americans are feeling about the Second Amendment.
0: But first, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen shot down speculation of a recession while on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. Let's watch that.
3: Um, A common definition of recession is two negative quarters of GDP growth, or at least that's something that's been true in past recessions. When we've seen that, Mm -hmm. there has usually been a recession, and many economists uh, expect second quarter GDP to be negative. First quarter GDP was negative. So we could see that happen, and that will be closely watched. But I do want to emphasize what a recession really means is a broad-based contraction yeah. in the economy. And even if that number is negative, we are not in a recession now. And um, I, I would, you know, one, that we should be um, not not characterizing that as a recession. I understand that,
4: but you're splitting hairs. I mean, if the technical definition is two quarters of contraction, you're saying that's not a recession?
3: That's not the tech. No? That's not the technical definition.
2: Just last week, the administration redefined what a recession is, according to a blog post by the White House. While some maintain that two consecutive quarters of falling GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. Based off data from the labor market, consumer and business spending, etc., it is unlikely... That the decline in GDP in the first quarter of this year, even if followed by another GDP decline in the second quarter, indicates a recession. So, what do you think, Robbie? This is
0: some. Um, this is um, Well, well. Actually, it's not a. Uh, you know that kind of <laughs> definition wordplay. Look, it's it's. People are suffering. So, who cares what we call it? Call it whatever you want. You know, you don't need to get. Uh, th- this is so characteristic of a government economic expert to be like, well, actually, it doesn't meet our technical definition of what, who cares? It doesn't matter if it's, if it's, if people, (laughs) if it's going to hurt, if the economy is bad, it's bad. If it's not what it should be, it's not what it should be. So it doesn't matter if it's technically meets their definitions. I think this is so silly.
2: So I have a little bit of a different view. I mean, far be it for me to extend, you know, any goodwill towards Janet Yellen, who failed to see, you know, any of the, the, the current crisis coming, you know, totally thought inflation was gonna be, um, you know, completely transitory. But, um, you know, to me, when I look at the labor market, uh, you know, the labor market is still so good. There are still 11 million open jobs in this country. And so I feel like from the point of view of the labor market, which is the point of view of, of laborers, right, which is where my focus always is, um, it seems to me very difficult to imagine that hiring is going to slow, that people are going to be laid off, because we know that uh, employers and corporations are still desperately looking for people to fill open jobs. And so I do think Think that there is sort of that sort of makes me want it, it to me that lends credibility to their view that there is something else going on here that is does not meet the standards of a very traditional recession.
0: Well, Bacha, do you think this is a good question? Do you think because Ryan and I have had this argument on the show before, do you think the um, economic uh, protections, the help, the assistance that the government has given people throughout the pandemic? I guess you know a lot of that has run out by now. Do you think that was preventing people from going back to work? Uh, and maybe for some people it still is. As money accumulates, they say, well, I have this, you know, this. Uh, I'd work, but I'm not going to work if I'm being paid not to work. You know, I'll work when I'm, I'm out of my, uh, my, my sort of government support. Um, Ryan really didn't think, agree with that, that that was what was behind it. What do you think?
2: I think that the second big infusion of cash payments when the when the economy was already in recovery under the Biden administration, Uh of course, that. increased inflation. Right. It's impossible to say that that didn't impact inflation. But to me, the idea that there are people two years later, you know, still living off of that twelve hundred dollars doesn't seem likely at all. I think what's more likely is that families found a way to live without, you know, mom going out and working eight hours a day, 12 hours a day at Walmart. Right. They found a way to make it work. Um, You know, that that pause, those three months of, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, mortgage payments gave them a pause to where they were able to start thinking about, you know, how can we reorganize this family so that, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of moms didn't go back to work. A lot of working class women didn't go back to work. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, a a tight labor market is actually really good for the working class. We've seen that it has led to slight increases in wages. Of course, there should be more. Of course, it hasn't kept kept up with inflation of course, two thirds of Americans are still living paycheck to paycheck. But the idea that a group of women in the lower classes decided, actually, I'd rather stay home, I'd rather not go back to my terrible job in customer service in retail where people treated me terribly. And I made, you know, $12 an hour, I can make it work. Um, It'll be a struggle, but it's more worth it for me to be home. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. What do you think?
0: Well, certainly, uh, you know, if people don't want to work, if their work does not give them a lot of meaning or happiness in life and they can avoid doing it, yeah, absolutely they should avoid doing it. Um, And you're right that the kinds of people, uh, you, you know, you speak for the working class, you do a lot of reporting on the working class. I think the working class is something of a mystery to a lot of, um, you know, elite media professional types, for who are married to their jobs, who you know can't imagine life without work, who you know have anxiety and all sorts of all sorts of other problems, uh, but not but the problems not being uh, their jobs. They like their jobs, or they're you know they're really or almost too involved with them, and they they don't understand that for a lot of people, a job is just a job. You would not do it if you if you didn't have to. Um, and that's that's not where the media professional class is at, and I think it makes them not uh, not very understanding of how of how ordinary people are.
2: Yeah, absolutely agree with that assessment, Robbie.
0: Well, the Fed is eyeing more interest rate hikes. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is expected to approve another seventy-five basis point hike this week and signal the Fed's intention to move higher in the months ahead. However, these hikes are creating an even worse housing market for young buyers as the Fed drives up mortgage rates, making it nearly impossible to find affordable housing.
2: And not all economists agree that that raising interest rates is the answer to inflation. During a debate here on Rising last week, two economists each had a different take on the Fed's strategy. Let's take a look at that.
3: Raising interest rates is really the wrong way to go about fighting inflation interest rates are also a cost of production. We are seeing that you know, loan volume actually is increasing. These are going to be costs that will be passed on to the consumer for some time to come until rates become high enough if the Fed is willing to go that way and crushes the economy. We have seen the scenario before. It has very devastating social consequences. We do not want, uh, the Fed cannot engineer soft landing and we don't want to go down that path
4: When the Biden administration first took office, right, if we compare price increases annually, that is about the rate at which prices are increasing monthly right now. So inflation has skyrocketed. It is a result of the government spending, borrowing, and printing far too much money. And the Federal Reserve needs to get its act together. Again, further context. The last time inflation was this high, the key Federal Reserve interest rate was over 13%. Today it is less than 2%. So the Fed is laughably behind the curve, and the idea that we can somehow fight inflation without rates going up is equally laughable. Hmm.
0: Hmm. I mean, I I lean in the direction of thinking that, yes, inflation is something that has to be gotten under control, even if it means increasing interest rates, that we're kind of, you know, we're already, we already drank too much alcohol, we have to have the hangover no matter what, like there's no getting (laughs) around it. Is kind of my philosophy here. Um, <laughs> spoken to someone who who drank too much on a, an occasion every now and then. I don't know. Uh, we, we can't we can't get around it, uh, and we have to do something about the inflation because people. I mean, people are furious. You know, seeing how much of their paycheck is going to essentials, going to food, going to gas, etc. Uh, you have it's it's a, a first priority to bring that under control at like any cost is sort of my view. And clearly, that's what the people want. You know, if you think the government should be responsive to what the people want, that's what the people want, right? People want inflation brought under control. It's their top political demand. It's the most important thing to them. So the administration has to take it seriously.
2: Yeah, and again, I mean, to me, um, that sort of the decoupling we're seeing right now between what happens at the sort of higher levels of the economy and then what happens in the labor market, I think suggests to me that the the you know the price of uh, raising interest rates is not going to be borne by the people that I'm most worried about, the people who are really mm-hmm. struggling, the people who are sort of supporting us all with their labor. Um, the one area that I, I do feel that it is really problematic and scary and dangerous is in the housing market because, as we know, you know that struggle for that middle class life where you own your own home is already so elusive, not just to the working class, but even to people in, you know, higher classes, right? I mean, the the prospect of owning your own home for most millennials, even just seems like a total fantasy at this point. And so, you know, looking at what's going on in the housing market right now, it just seems devastating, like that, that, that middle class American dream life is so far out of reach. And it's so hard to imagine anything happening on that front.
0: Well, we want to hit one more topic before we wrap this segment. Last week, the administration quietly gave Ukraine $270 million. The military package included rocket systems, ammo, and more, and U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that, quote, we're pushing hard to maintain the momentum of donations, adding that this will be an area of focus for the foreseeable future. Meanwhile, the Russian economy is doing better than it was even before the war due to export revenue from oil and gas. Russia's central bank actually cut interest rates, and Ukraine's inflation is shooting through the roof. So, more weapon systems for Ukraine. Uh, yeah, again, Biden's, the official Biden standpoint is as long as it takes. I guess even if it takes forever, if it takes, it's impossible. It, we can't. Help Ukraine uh, defeat Russia or kick them out of their country, but we're just prepared to give any amount of money to this country. And again, I, you know, I've said on the show many times, I'm sympathetic. They're invaded. Russia is the aggressor. Russia should not have done this. If there was, if there was something that could be done, to you know, without putting American lives at risk or without wrecking the American economy, I, I would, I would be willing to consider it. But clearly, that's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is a, a war effort that is at best, holding off the day in which this is over, that is not you know, going to re- reverse the, the fortunes of this conflict, and is just it, it's very responsible for the high energy prices that we're f- facing here. There's no public appetite for it whatsoever, and yet Congress is prepared to give, it seems like a blank check, any amount of money to help with this war effort.
2: I cannot agree with you more. I find this absolutely maddening, the lack of democratic process the lack of say that we have as the american people and where our taxpayer money goes shipping off you know weapons to this degree taxpayer funded and we can't we have no way of tracing these weapons we don't know who's who, who's getting their hands on right. them we don't know what's happening with them there's no accountability you know reports from on the ground tell about how this has become a sort of like there's there's almost um, some bizarre showmanship happening because they have to use up the weapons in order to get the next shipment. Uh, it's just absolutely maddening. And like you, I'm very sympathetic to the struggle of the Ukrainian people. Sovereignty, national sovereignty is extremely important. But are we really going to fund the Ukraine to the point where the impossible is going to happen, where, you know, the Ukraine is going to once again take over the Donbass region? When this conflict started, The Ukraine did not have control over the Donbas region. It was an independent region, right? So the idea that we would now correct Ukraine's own civil war history, that we should be funding that, I just don't understand why? You know, I, I see that people they they want you know we're in this new Cold War era. They want to see Russia. They they want to see Russia as their main adversary. But what they're doing is they're essentially building Russia up by fighting against it in this way in this sort of hopeless conflict. I've said from the beginning we should be we should be encouraging the Ukraine to find a way out of this. We should be encouraging Russia to find an off ramp to this. We should be finding a way for them to 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 get out of this situation because human lives are being lost and this kind of Blank check as you put it, Robbie, you're so right. It's just unconscionable. It is unconscionable at a moment where two thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck to see this kind of money just just being shipped out to another country.
0: How many times have we given weapons to, you know, our friend our friends in some other country to help them, you know, fight their battle, fight their civil war, and then Then it ends, and then those weapons end up in the hands of people who want to kill. It literally literally blows up in our faces. How many times does this have to happen uh, before we learn our lesson? I guess guess at least one more time. Uh, But we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. Stay tuned.
2: Robbie, what's on your radar?
0: So on this show, I frequently discuss how America is facing an onslaught of illiberalism, of contempt for free speech for tolerance and for due process norms, coming from some corners of the far right and also the progressive left. Far-right illiberalism is resulting in some bad, I would say, legislation in various parts of the country where Republicans are in charge. But progressive illiberalism is attacking our culture. It's taken hold on elite college campuses and spread from there to corporate media, media institutions, social media, where it is enforced by a tiny cabal of highly ideological radicals who permit no dissent This phenomenon goes by many names. We used to call it political correctness run amok. The name that's sticking these days is wokeness. All issues are filtered through it, through the lens of racism and sexism and ableism and all the other isms. Even as it makes so many of us miserable on social media, on college campuses, in the workplace, it's important to know that it's also making life miserable for people who work in progressive advocacy. In fact, it's rendering some progressive advocacy completely ineffective. Their organizations are simply collapsing due to infighting created by the cult of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Once an organization starts empowering the DEI bureaucrats, it's a virtual guarantee that the organization will become a toxic place where the most easily offended extremist voices prevail. Don't just take my word for it. This is a phenomenon that many on the left who would like to make their organizations healthier have noticed. Rising Friday's co-host Ryan Grimm had this to say about it last month.
5: I published a story at The Intercept on the widespread phenomenon of mass dysfunction at progressive organizations across issue areas. The story, called Elephant in the Zoom, looks at the way that progressive nonprofits have increasingly become largely non-functional amid internal turmoil. Now, since the story came out, I've heard countless news stories from people along the same lines. One of the most vivid comes from an activist I've known for a long time, who told me that back in the spring of 2021, While the climate debate was heating up around Build Back Better, he reached out to a particular climate group for help with a particular issue that they were having, and he was told that the group was taking the next eight weeks, eight weeks, to work on internal issues.
0: Internal issues are in fact crippling the efficacy of progressive organizations. One such organization is Women Against Abuse, one of the largest nonprofit organizations that works to counter domestic abuse. It provides counseling for victims, helps them with legal representation, and in the city of Philadelphia, it's actually the primary domestic violence shelter. Now, this is important work because Philadelphia is currently in the midst of a massive violent crime spike. But Women Against Abuse has fallen prey to the diversity consultants who, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, convinced the organization to adopt the attitude that involving the police in domestic violence situations is wrong and, in fact, racist. Women Against Abuse's previous policies were resulting in a, quote, safe harbor from confronting white supremacy and were not accountable to things like microaggressions and white supremacy behaviors, according to diversity presentations outlining this new approach. Women Against Abuse is now being sued by a former employee, Nicole Levitt, who says that white employees had been asked to sign a statement affirming that, quote, all white people are racist and that I am not the exception. The Progressive Advocacy Group's ideological capture by misguided diversity bureaucrats is explained in a terrific news story from the Washington Free Beacon's Aaron Sabariam, a reporter who specializes in covering the dysfunction within activist organizations. And Aaron is actually joining us now to tell us more. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron.
6: Thank you for having me, Robbie.
0: Yeah, I think this is a very indicative story. You know, we've heard a lot like it. uh, But tell us a little bit more about the particular dysfunction at this organization.
6: Yeah, so uh, in the wake of George Floyd's death, Uh, many organizations brought in these DEI consultants to examine the ways in which they were complicit in racism, white supremacy, what have you. Um, And, you know, some of what those consultants did was perhaps obnoxious, but ultimately harmless, you know, changing language may not seem like that big a deal. Some of the stuff is just kind of semantic navel gazing, but at this organization, it really went much further than that. Um, They, put out a statement, as you mentioned in your opening, saying that it was unsafe for uh, black and other minority victims of domestic violence to call the police. They jettisoned a number of best practices for working with domestic violence victims on the grounds that they somehow perpetuated white supremacy. Um, And they also uh, engaged in just flagrantly illegal race discrimination. They offered to pay BIPOC employees more than white ones to sit on a racial audit equity committee, um, which is just a direct violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, as well as local Pennsylvania uh, civil rights law. Um, So what happened was basically overnight, you saw this organization uh, adopt policies that were directly at odds with its mission and also directly at odds with the law. Um, so it's just a total kind of system wide meltdown, um, one that, to my knowledge, is still to, to some extent going on. It's not like any of these policies have been reversed um, or the environment there seems to have gotten any better. Hmm.
0: Right. And it speaks to something. Uh, well, I think you've talked about this too, too Bacha, that you know who are the, these? These uh, domestic violence victims that are disproportionately low-income, that are disproportionately minority, um, okay, they're not supposed to call the police, fine. What are they supposed to do? Like, what is the resource then for people who are who are in actually unsafe, not like unsafe in the, you know, I've, I've encountered harmful language sense, but actually unsafe circumstances, and then they, they just have no answer for these people?
6: I, I think their answer is basically... Um, you know, uh, ruled by, uh, you know, social services, right? So instead of the police, they say, well, here's an alternative, you know, we can bring in counselors or we can bring in X, Y, or Z. Um, and of course, in a lot of domestic violence cases, that is just not going to be sufficient. Um, I mean, I would also note too, that that uh, Bhatia has talked a lot about sort of the class dynamics of the great awokening. Mm-hmm. Um, And you see this um, in the the people who they brought in to conduct this equity audit. Uh, One of them, Regina Arrington, is a senior official at the Clinton Foundation, right? So these are not, like, marginal people. They're not even just, like, say, you know, grad PhDs from, you know, woke studies at some random university. These are people who are really at, like, the top of the philanthropy food chain in the United States. Um, They're pretty mainstream. Um, And so what you have is kind of a group of uh, sort of elite uh, DEI consultants who come in and transform an organization that is supposed to be, as you say, for, I think, predominantly low-income people, and most of their clients are people of color, and ends up, you know, recommending all sorts of policies um, that are just insane. Um, So there is a class dynamic here, too.
2: Right. And you've been your work across the board has really highlighted this. Your reporting has been so excellent, Aaron. You know, I think. okay. so the three of us probably are all equally sort of, you know, uh, you know, nauseated by statements like all white people perpetuate white supremacy. And I am, you know, no exception. And there is something sort of so poignant in your story about this, you know, these rich people who work for the Clintons talking about how, you know, a certain workplace environment makes them feel unsafe when that workplace is supposed to be helping women who are like getting shot and killed by their abusive partners, right? There's something about that that's such such a perfect encapsulation of that kind of that woke class dynamic. I wonder, though, Aaron, is it possible at all to steel man what's going on here, what you found in your extensive reporting about the, this? sort of gross woke tendency like how would they defend themselves like how is there any steel manning to this at all you know what they were the, you know or or no no we're all right about it <laughs> it's just terrible
6: well what they would say is that because most of their clients are people of color they need to work to make the organization more welcoming to them and you know like like in in the abstract sure if there were some concrete piece of language or some concrete policy that was actively pushing people away um, who needed their services then yes it would make sense to change that but you know i I don't to my to my satisfaction they have not identified you know really a single such uh concrete policy you know they just sort of hand wave and then say uh well um all this like pretty mainstream basic stuff is a white supremacy i mean there's there's not really an argument um and yeah you know i, I guess the only other thing i would say is i i broadly agree that we should try to steal man um but i also sometimes think the steel manning impulse can kind of lapse into almost self-parody like you know, when you're trying to make people sign a statement saying all white people are racist and I am not the exception, you're violating the Civil Rights Act to pay BIPOC employees more, and you're telling black victims of domestic violence that it's unsafe for them to call the police. I mean, at that point, like, you know, come on. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really yeah. think that we need to, you know, pretend that there's some kind of really deep, you know, philosophical, uh, philosophical, like, consistent worldview for it. It's it's just sort of this, you know, DEI copy-pasta, um, as Wesley Yang would call it. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, if if you read my piece and you read the language they're using, I, I it does not exude careful thought or intelligence, right? And so I don't think that we should feel obligated to impute any kind of careful. We'll
0: and it's increasingly candidates. characteristic of a, of a broad swath of organization of activist organizations, progressive nonprofits, college campuses. And it has entered to some uh, elite media, some corporate uh, workplaces, uh, employ these same kinds of diversity bureaucrats. And uh, it's, you know, it's really spread. And you've done a lot of terrific uh, reporting on, you know, the spread of this from college campuses uh, to elsewhere. But it's 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 sort of hilarious in, in some twisted sense, how totally wholly ineffective um, it's rendering some uh, progressive organizations. So anyway, Aaron, a great story. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. What's on your radar, Bacha?
2: Well, Robbie, it seems that reports of the death of bipartisanship are greatly exaggerated. Last week, the House passed a bill protecting same-sex marriage by a comfortable margin and 47 Republican votes. That's now headed to the Senate and we'll know shortly if it has the 60 votes needed to pass. The Senate is also planning another vote this week that is expected to pass with bipartisan support, this one known as the CHIPS Act. The bill is supposed to help us start to manufacture semiconductors here in the U.S., What are semiconductors? Most of you probably know this already, but for any of my fellow English majors out there, a semiconductor is a piece of equipment made out of silicon or germanium that is highly processed until it's perfectly designed to control and manage the electrical current in electronics. Once processed, they become a crucial component of computer microchips in electronic devices from your smartphone, to your TV, to your air conditioner, to medical equipment, to electric cars, to all major U.S. defense systems. That's right. All of them, especially artificial intelligence in weaponry. The process of making these microchips is just mind-blowing. Try putting how to make a semiconductor into a YouTube search if you want to truly appreciate the ingenuity of man, or if, like me, you managed to get this far in life without having learned any of this. The transistors that combine to make chips are tiny. We're talking 14 billionths of a meter. A microchip can be the size of a fingernail, but have over 100 layers and billions of transistors in it. It can take 700 processing steps and 14 weeks of processing time to make a microchip. And because they're so small, you need to use deep UV rays to construct the chips because the dimensions of the pieces you're trying to manufacture are less than the wavelength of visibility visible light The factories also have to be super clean because even a single particle of dust can destroy a whole batch of microchips and they need to be totally resistant to the vibrations of the outside world. So this is why it costs about 10 to $20 billion to build a semiconductor factory, which are known as fabs. That's a super heavy lift for someone wanting to get into this business or even for a country wanting to get into this business. So maybe it's not surprising that one country has a near complete monopoly on making semiconductors 92 percent of the world's top chips are manufactured by taiwan specifically the giant taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company or tsmc for short Taiwan's dominance dates back to a decision made in the 1980s to focus on making chips for other companies who wanted to cut costs and focus on design rather than manufacturing. Of course, that was right around the time that both political parties in America decided to start shipping good working class jobs in manufacturing off to China and Taiwan and Mexico. Taiwan took that suggestion and really ran with it when it came to the manufacturing sector that would define the future. It's not just the jobs, though. The global supply chain crisis has also come for semiconductors, revealing how vulnerable we are under the current setup. The supply chain for chips is extremely complex. It involves hundreds of raw materials and over 50 kinds of high-tech equipment, plus thousands of suppliers from Europe, America, and Asia. And then there's the national security question here. The way things are now, our military is completely reliant on a country that our greatest adversary believes it has sovereignty over. Under the one China principle held by the People's Republic of China, there is only one sovereign state of China, and it includes Taiwan. The threat posed by a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan would mean that China would essentially control the fabs that produce crucial parts of our military's equipment equipment not a great situation the threat of being cut off completely from 92% of our semiconductor supply is real and the impact would be devastating commerce secretary gino gina rimondo warned last week Quote, if you allow yourself to think about a scenario where the United States no longer had access to the chips currently being made in Taiwan, it's a scary scenario, Raimondo said. It's a deep and immediate recession. It's an inability to protect ourselves by making military equipment. We need to make this in America. Enter the CHIPS Act, which stands for Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America. The bill earmarks $52 billion in incentives to companies to start building chip manufacturing plants here in the U.S. $39 billion would be for chip makers to build fabs, and another $11 billion is earmarked for semiconductor research and development. It's hardly enough to fully fund a domestic semiconductor industry, but it's a start, something like a down payment for companies willing to jump into the race. The main beneficiary would be Intel which already had plans to spend $20 billion to build a microchip factory in Ohio, which it promised to turn into $100 billion if the CHIPS Act passes. Intel is expected to get $30 billion from the CHIPS Act, so more than its initial investment. Um, And the company expects this to translate into 3,000 Intel jobs and 7,000 construction jobs, though it postponed the groundbreaking of the fab in a hissy fit when the CHIPS Act was delayed. The Senate is expected to vote on the CHIPS Act this week, on Wednesday, probably, and it's already passed a procedural vote last week with a hope-inducing 64 to 34 margin. But one person who voted against it might surprise you, Senator Bernie Sanders, who called the package corporate welfare and joined many Republicans, as well as the Wall Street Journal's editorial board and the Heritage Foundation, in opposing the bill. Like I said, reports of the death of bipartisanship, greatly exaggerated. Last year, Intel could afford to give its CEO, Pat Gelsinger, a $179 million compensation package, Sanders said on the floor of the Senate. Over the past 20 years, Intel spent over $100 million on lobbying and campaign contributions while shipping thousands of jobs to China and other low-income countries. Does it sound like this company really needs corporate welfare? Senator Sanders asked. It's interesting that Senator Sanders has less of a problem of paying corporate welfare to corporations willing to transition to green energy than he does to corporations offering thousands and thousands of working class Americans good paying jobs. That's for another radar. The truth is that many countries pay billions to shore up domestic manufacturing. And if it was kosher for the government to make trade deals that incentivize off- offshoring good manufacturing jobs, surely it's appropriate for the government to incentivize bringing those jobs back. It's not corporations' job to worry about having a stable middle class, much as I wish it was. It's the government's. Others have argued that it's not feasible to build an industry on American wages when you have a country full of Taiwanese workers willing to work for much less. But that again speaks to the corporate welfare argument. If government subsidies are going to sweeten the deal for Intel to pay good wages to American workers instead of worse wages to Taiwanese workers, that's not taxpayer dollars going to corporate welfare. It's taxpayer dollars going to shoring up the working class and the middle class. As long as these fabs are producing something that every single sector of the American economy needs, paying a living American wage for it should be a no brainer. So it's good that the CHIPS Act had as has an added provision prohibiting companies from using the funds they get for stock buybacks or to pay dividends. Um, and it's also good that all of this has garnered the CHIPS Act the support of everyone from Mike Pompeo to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Speaking of Pelosi, there's something of a fake news meme going round about a recent stock purchase her husband made. Paul Pelosi recently bought $5 million in shares of NVIDIA, a semiconductor manufacturer. And many were saying that this rose even to the level of insider trading, given how close the purchase was to the vote on the CHIPS Act. We actually touched on this last week. But it turns out that NVIDIA is a fabulous semiconductor manufacturer, meaning that they design semiconductors, but their semiconductors are made by another company. Silicon foundries, and fabless companies actually won't get any money from the CHIPS Act. I still don't think politicians and their spouses should be allowed to trade stocks, but in this case, it's not quite as evil, Knievel as I had initially thought, so a small correction there. Pelosi herself is actually planning a trip to Taiwan, which has the Chinese very upset, and we'll be talking about that in the next segment. Um, but when it comes to the CHIPS Act, you know, we're really looking at what I hope is a new strain of bipartisanship built around good working class jobs that support solid mil- middle class lives. Um, to me, this is great, but, Robbie, I know you're not on the same no, page as me, so uh, I want to <laughs> hear the libertarian argument against this corporate welfare.
0: <laughs> um, no, I, I agree with Bernie Sanders on this one. Uh, it is corporate welfare, and, and you're right to point out his hypocrisy in that he supports subsidies uh, for green uh, jobs, but I don't support those subsidies either. <laughs> I don't support any of them. Look, I think, uh, I think I think it's great if Intel wants to make uh, chips here in the good old U.S. of A. Absolutely, what, and if the regulatory regime is unfavorable, I absolutely make supporting the regulatory regime more favorable. Um, you know, whatever the now that's going to involve probably a lot of labor restrictions gone away. Uh, you might not like that. May, there might be some environmental <laughs> or, or environmental impact regulations that could be gotten away with. You might agree with those. So let's make the let's let's be open for business. Let's make it as easy as possible to build. Fact- here to hire people, to pay them what the company wants to pay them, not what the government wants to pay them, and and yeah, let's go to town. But to artificially create one via this network of subsidies, I mean, I I, I love Amazon. I defend Amazon on the show all the time. I didn't want to, all the incentives we gave them to headquarter here in D.C. were disgusting. I wouldn't have done any of that either. So look, I for, for the tree to take root, for to flourish and grow, it has to be, it should be justified by by the market itself and the business model. If we got to prop it up, it it will wither and die. Then we're going to fund something else. We're going to get new ideas. And also, there will be constant complaints. You're right to point out how this one isn't exactly the conflict of interest. Maybe we thought it was initially, but there's going to be so much backroom dealing. And well, you know, this is in this congressperson's interest or this is even this is in my district's interest and this is not in mine. It gets I think it gets real gross real real fast now I don't have a good answer to the issue that yes we're very reliant on Taiwan and uh, that it's a national security issue look I don't like that it's a national security issue uh, but uh, my again my solution would be to see if we could ease the regulatory regime I, ju- I think subsidizing it has a lot of has a lot of bad <laughs> you're smiling at me I think it's a bad way to go but I it's a it's a legitimate disagreement and I I, I, I don't want the climate to force the, the regulatory climate to force these companies to move these jobs overseas. It seems like bringing them back would be good. It just seems very, very not feasible to do it. Because what if they take this money and then they don't build the factory? That's happened so many times. Uh, that, that's happened with eminent domain, where they knock down people's houses so, uh, so they can, you, know, you can grow a new factory or something, and then they don't build it anyway.
2: Well, they had the uh, you know, Congress is very has been very clear that there's going to be a lot of oversight here and a lot of you know, that they can they reserve the right to demand the money back. um, You know, if if they don't see something that they like, if they you know, if nothing happens, Um, I do think that the the national security concern. Um, makes this something that um, I could even you know I think that's probably why a lot of conservatives are supporting giving you know this much money to a corporation, you know this um, you know 52 billion dollars is nothing to sneeze at. Um, you know so that that's I mean we, we never have a problem with you know the government paying for the military, right? Um, and, and well, do, 10 to yeah. 20 oh, okay <laughs> but you know 10 to 20 billion dollars to start one of these factories is just it's such a heavy lift, but their role in the in the economy, is so crucial. I mean, we will never not have a demand for semiconductors, right? So when I think about, you know, these disasters of central planning, like, you know, in in, in communist countries where, you know, there was, you know, they they would force people to grow things because the central, you know, the centralized government Mm -hmm. wanted that thing to be grown and then they would end up, you know, throwing it out because there was no demand for it. We'll never be in a situation like that. There will always be a demand for semiconductor chips. The the more, the better, and the better, the better. Um, So to me, that seems like um, We're not going to end up in a situation where we're sort of paying people to produce something we don't need. We're going to be in a situation where we're paying working class Americans, middle class wages to produce something that we all rely on, which is the American dream.
0: China issued strong private warnings to the U.S. government about a planned trip to Taiwan by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, which included a possible military response. Meanwhile, Taiwan is reportedly staging air raid drills ahead of the possible visit. Now, according to The Washington Post, White House officials are concerned that Chinese leaders could see Pelosi's visit as a, quote, purposeful provocation and spark a diplomatic crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Now, if the visit goes through, Pelosi would be the first House Speaker to visit Taiwan in 25 years.
2: In a recent op-ed for The Post, columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Henry Olson wrote, quote, the free world would be shaken if Taiwan were to fall into China's grasp. That's exactly why Pelosi should go. Our Asian allies look to us to defend them against China's threat, and a visit by Pelosi would signal that Taiwan's quest to remain free is supported by a top US leader. Henry joins us now to expand on his op-ed, and we're also glad to be joined by Dan Cohen, journalist at Mint Press News. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Henry, I wonder if you could start by just expanding on your op-ed for us. Lay out the argument for Pelosi going to Taiwan.
7: Yeah, Taiwan is essential to the free world security, both because of its position in the um, Western Pacific, and also because it produces the vast majority of semiconductors. Taiwan falls to the Chinese, then they have economic blackmail ability, not overall us, but across all of our allies. So the reason for Pelosi to go is to signal to the Chinese that yes, uh, we are willing to make strong efforts in order to keep Taiwan outside of the red Chinese orbit. Uh, Doesn't change officially US policy of strategic ambiguity, but it signals that people who really matter in the US government uh, want to see Taiwan remain independent. And I think that's in the free world's interest.
0: What do you think, Dan? I guess, you know, my question is, does signaling this actually do anything to China other than, you know, make them more inclined to start some conflict with Taiwan? Does it actually deter them? What do you think?
5: Well, I hope Henry is ready to lead the neocon division of the think tank brigade into war against China, because that's exactly what his op-ed is calling for. The Chinese have made it abundantly clear that Pelosi's visit to Ukraine, to, I'm sorry, to Ukraine, to Taiwan is a total provocation and any, and they're not afraid to use force if they have to. I mean, the idea of the U.S. being able to, to defeat China in Asia and specifically in Taiwan is so, is completely absurd and is only in the most feverish imagination of neocons in Washington. And for anyone who wants peace in this world and prosperity it's the absolute worst idea possible. We saw that today uh Taiwan is having military drills and air raid sirens are going off as uh you know in preparation. So this is a this is a terrible omen and Pelosi's visit should be condemned by anyone by everyone.
2: Henry, your response?
5: Well, yeah, I think the question is do you
7: think that Taiwan is going to be invaded or is likely to be attacked by China to begin with. You know, I think it's been increasingly clear that the Chinese want to conquer Taiwan. They prefer to do it peacefully. They'll do it by war if they have to. With respect to war in Asia, this is not a land war in Asia. This is a sea Mao, and that is one that the United States and its allies can prevail in. It doesn't mean it's an automatic to me, but it means that it's one that we can prevail in because you're not facing 1.3 billion Chinese on land. I think that what you have to look at is what the Chinese objective is. The Chinese objective is to maximize their strategic sphere of influence in Asia with the least cost possible. The more we're willing to say that there's actually going to be a cost, the less likely they will be to do what they would do otherwise. Which which is invade Taiwan if they knew that there was not going to be a response from us or our allies. Mm.
0: But, Henry, this doesn't seem to be working, for instance, in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, right? We're raising the cost for Russia. They're just doing it anyway. Uh, it's, you know, making us somewhat more miserable domestically. The conflict is going on. But, it you know, I, I have lost kind of any faith that we can dissuade Russia from this cause by the kind of things we're doing. So I guess why would... Taiwan be any different, and, and in fact, Taiwan is probably a harder case because this is further removed from a, a sphere of U.S. influence than, uh, you know, Ukraine, which is in in Europe and you know where we have many regional allies. Is
7: well, we have many regional allies in Asia. Japan has uh, called for us to state clearly that we will defend Taiwan. Japan, our strongest ally in the northern Pacific, is positioning its military on some of its territory so it can defend Taiwan. It's prepared to breach their 1% limit of GDP on defense so that they can successfully rearm to combat. Uh, China. Failure to confront China in Taiwan has regional implications in the Pacific as well, just in the way that failure to confront Russia in Ukraine would have had regional uh, implications for our allies in Europe. The question is, do you believe that the United States is safer with allies in Europe and Asia that keep our potential adversaries farther away from us, or do you think that that draws us into conflicts that are unnecessary? People on the libertarian right or the populist left tend to say, we shouldn't have those alliances or we shouldn't take them seriously. Uh, people on the, the more sensible right or center think that we should, and I fall in that camp.
2: Dan, do you wanna take that up? What's your answer to that question?
5: Well, the I mean, the idea that the United States can prevail in war against China in the South China Sea, as Henry said, is completely ludicrous. I mean, we the U.S. is unable to defeat Russia uh, defeat Russia in Ukraine, even as it subcontracts out this war to Ukraine. Um, I mean, we the U.S. failed in a 20-year war in Afghanistan, a bunch a bunch uh, against a bunch of farmers uh, in Syria. The U.S. failed in Libya the US succeeded in destroying the government and that's led to open slave markets so everywhere the US has intervened has led to absolute catastrophes and those are against much smaller countries that don't have nuclear weapons so what we are looking at is if this actually you know if this war that that Henry wa- apparently wants and thinks the US can win is at best a zero sum game Taiwan would be a smoldering rubble, a smoldering pile, of, a smoldering pile of rubble. And, you know, the idea of nuclear war makes me shudder and any sane person should should feel the same. So I just, you know, can't imagine how any rational person would would think that uh, the U.S. should be agitating for war against China in especially in China's backyard. It's just completely insane.
0: Henry, is there a non, uh, military strategy for constraining or confronting China? Because I, you know, I don't want to see, I, I, the China, you know, what China, an authoritarian country, did during, uh, the COVID pandemic is horrifying to me. I, I don't, I, I, I have no desire to see them expand, uh, expand their global influence and reach. Uh, but I, I, I guess being on the libertarian right, I am, I am, sim, I'm similarly skeptical like Dan. Uh, that the that the military option a, is actually working or can work. So what is what what else is on the table for preventing them, you know, from, from from us living under the Chinese century or something like that?
7: Well, first of all, military shield is the best way to do that. You know, I'm not. Well, I don't want war with China, but I don't think you should shirk away from it because I don't think they've demonstrated an objective limitation. It's not like they want Taiwan and then don't want anything else. They wouldn't be signing agreements across the globe, putting military bases in Africa, which they're doing in Djibouti, sending a Blue Ocean Navy into the Indian Ocean, if their objectives were limited to just getting a wayward province. For uh, non-military things, what we should do is withdraw from China, trade with China as quickly as is feasible and possible. It's basically American money uh, that is propping up the Chinese government and propping up the Chinese military. We've been financing their rise through money and technology for the last 20 years, and we should simply stop doing it. And that's going to mean tariffs, and that's going to mean some form of subsidies, bringing things back to the American sphere of influence in North America, and it's going to mean a lot of diplomacy. But if you constrain the growth of their economy and cut them off from Western technology as much as is feasible, then that limits their ability to grow and threaten us, and that would be something that I would strongly endorse
2: so, Dan, I wonder if we can get you to agree with, I mean, do you agree that we should be withdrawing economically from China and becoming much more self-sustainable?
5: I'm all for becoming more economically self-sustainable. What I'm not for is uh, is extreme moves that will only dis- further disintegrate the world economy, increase prices, increase inflation like we've been suffering from. I mean, we just cut off Russia from from the Western uh, economic system, and, Russia's, and the Russian ruble is doing great, and we're suffering from huge inflation. So for average Americans who are struggling to put food on the table, pay their rent, and fill their tank of gas, it's pretty obvious that doing the same to China is only going to blow back on the United States, and not on, you know, wealthy elites in Washington and and on Wall Street who are going to benefit from this, but for regular people like the guy who sleeps in, in his car on my street, or if you walk around downtown Washington, the homeless encampments. So that should be the primary focus is actually improving this country, not figuring out how we can strangle some other country on the other side of the world that is no longer some tiny uh, country. It's, it's a major force to be reckoned with, and we need real diplomacy in the goal of peace, not in you know aggression, whether it's through military or economic.
0: Well, Henry and Dan, thank you so much for joining us and having this debate. We really appreciate it.
7: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Nearly one in three Americans say it may soon be necessary to take up arms against the government, according to a new poll from the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. Two-thirds of Republicans and independents say the government is, quote, corrupt and rigged against everyday people, according to the poll. Associate editor at Reason, Liz Wolf, joins us now to weigh in. Liz, welcome.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, of course, the government is corrupt and the system is rigged (laughs) against the people. I mean, that, we we should just establish that. That's not really up for debate. Uh, The whole, you know, take up arms kind of rhetoric I do kind of roll my eyes at some of that and I'm I'm curious for your take Liz there's a lot of like yeah let's stockpile ammo let's do that kind of stuff I I often hear that even in our own quarters in libertarian uh, uh, corners but it usually the people who are most talking about that are like just very online and tweeting about it and like are you really are you really going to be of any use in like a fight or a militia or a civil war or something you're just terminally online I don't know what's what's your take
4: I mean, these are the same people where, you know, they talk a big talk. This is 33% of people that we're talking about. And yet when it comes time to go through a TSA security line, they've like packaged all their gels in three ounce containers and they take their shoes (laughs) off. Like they're compliant and obedient, right? A lot of them don't even homeschool their kids. They send their kids to government schools every day.
8: Mm -hmm. Their
4: actual revealed preferences, their actual behavior totally contradicts what they claim they're all about so i don't really take it all that seriously but i would say that i think the um better thing for people to do would be to emphasize uh figuring out how to fire government officials much more readily much more easily i think you know we're going to have lots of terrible unintended consequences if people try to take up arms against the government that is incredibly violent i don't want to see that bloodshed but one thing you could do is you could try to do more um ballot initiatives more referenda. You could try to fire your corrupt school board officials. You could try to fire your governor. California, actually, which is never really a bastion of liberty, has a really strong tradition of doing this, and more
2: and more states should emulate that.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, it seems like the question of like, you know that they, they believe that it will it might soon become necessary for them to respond to some kind of government overreach right? In the most extreme possible way, right? They're not saying we want to do this. They're saying we can imagine a scenario coming down the pike in which it will become necessary for this to happen, but we're not there yet, right? Like that's kind of what, what I'm getting off of this. I may be reading too much yeah. into it or be, you know being too literal. <laughs> Although but, I guess then um, when yeah. will it be?
0: So, okay, obviously the, the, our, our country is founded in a tradition of taking up arms against a tyrannical government. So we do have to keep that in mind. I would say the last two years have been rather tyrannical. Um, a lot of restrictions on people's individual, their right to gather, their right to conduct business uh, have been uh, their per- restrictions on personal liberty. You have to go outside in a mask. We're just some the government attempted the, the court blocked them. Right. To have some vaccine requirements as well for a wide group of workers. It seems pretty tyrannical e to me, but uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know, Liz is it now is now the time?
4: <laughs> well, to me, the thing that's really disturbing that we we encountered, I mean I, I encountered this as a New York City resident and Batia did too. I really could not stand uh, the requirement that people show their vax their proof of vaccination upon entry into restaurants, especially when we knew that that was not necessarily a thing that indicated that they're not going to be, you know, viral vectors of transmission. I thought the most egregious thing of all was the degree to which this trumped uh, parental autonomy and parental rights by requiring that, you know, even very young children be vaccinated and show proof of vaccination in order to participate in any sort of social life in New York. Uh, To me, this is just like such a huge imposition uh, on people's freedoms. It's completely unjust. And so I can understand people having their hackles raised, a sense of, depending on where you lived and and what was imposed on you, a sense of, well, are the courts actually going to serve as a meaningful stopgap and a meaningful preventative measure to ensure that that type of thing doesn't happen again? We're seeing this especially because now, like LA County is reimposing mask mandates. This was something that we all thought was over. And now I'm sort of beginning to wonder like, what will life in New York City look like if case counts rise? I Mm -hmm. had thought that we were totally out of the woods here But perhaps that's a naive assumption because there are really very few limits on the powers that the authorities that be in these really blue cities use to restrict our civil liberties.
0: Yeah. And in L.A., it's it's Barbara Ferrer is the uh, assistant health director, whatever her title is, an unelected position with with huge responsibility over the covid response. Um, People hate it but she there's no accountability that she has which shows i think the danger of having so many unelected unaccountable bureaucrats our government has gotten so vast has so many employees that are not elected that are not subject to democratic they're not subject to market forces or democratic forces they're just they're subject to no forces they can't be gotten rid of and that is i think undergirds a lot of this um, unhappiness that people have and and the desire to rise up and do something about it, even if I think that would ultimately be fairly counterproductive. But we do need to change the system.
4: And even the ones that are elected are so hard to fire. I mean, to me, the most heartening, but also the most disturbing example of this is the fact that San Francisco is basically a city in disarray and ruin. And what happened during the pandemic was children were kept out of school for an insane amount of time, much longer than other school districts. Um, And parents basically decided, in fact, a huge contingent of Asian American parents who were sort of neither left-leaning nor right-leaning really, they basically decided, screw this. Uh, The school board was busying themselves with renaming problematically named public schools. And so ultimately voters decided to fire three of these school board officials. To me, that it's horrible that school board officials uh, squandered their responsibility and and squandered their ability to affect positive change the way they did. But it's a really heartening sign that voters were just like, nope, we're not tolerating this anymore. So we need to be doing that in as many places as possible.
2: I, ha- I have to push back just a tiny bit I, I so admire the energy you guys bring to this and your outrage at the civil liberties that have been taken away from Americans in blue cities and I totally agree with you however as somebody who knows people who live in Canada and Israel and is watching the footage coming out of China and knows people in the UK like guys we had it really good even in blue cities and I, I'm not saying that to Compared defend to them, yes. The terrible yeah. like in Israel you were not allowed yeah. to walk further than 6 meters from your home. Can you imagine any American, anybody putting up with that? Never, never. You look at what's happening in China, the way they're treating people in Shanghai, right? This ma- So I, I, that is not to justify True. any of the horrible stuff. But just I think that that's what the people in this poll are looking at. They're saying, look, we, mm. you, first of all, I'm sure most of them are you know, in red states where they're like, no lockdowns, right? <laughs> but they're looking at what's happening in China. They're looking at what happened in Israel and in the UK. And they're saying that is a scenario in which I can imagine things getting so bad that i would have to pick up arms and say no more i I don't think that it's in response to yes the errors that were made here and yet again like i really respect the energy you guys bring to this like every (laughs) infringement on civil liberties is terrible but there is a scale here yes you're no you're (laughs) not wrong
0: at all about you
4: in australia they solved this problem uh very Doing gun buybacks several years before to ensure nobody in the country right. was armed, and then they did the really <laughs> severe and restrictive lockdowns. So it's a little bit of this one-two punch type situation. Well, and that is—I totally agree with you. Though. Yeah, that I mean, is an argument for
0: normal. having an armed uh, populace, not because we're going to actually have some revolution, we're going to throw off the government. Like, no, that's not going to happen but because in America there's a little less political will to impose really tyrannical stuff on oh, people really. because oh, the really. people could make it difficult if you do. They don't oh, want really. that to, to the degree that you see it in other countries. And, uh, and I, am, I am thankful for that, uh, that we have this tradition of individual liberty and of people you know defending their liberties, even if we absolutely don't want it and don't expect it to ever really come to the, the nasty side of that.
4: I think this is why libertarians are so sensitive to any encroachment on civil liberties, because we see it as like, especially when you look at Australia's example, or you look at the degree to which the CCP has just, you know, utterly stripped people of anything resembling any form of freedom. Um, You know, they don't have academic freedom. They can't learn the things they want in universities. They don't have freedom of mobility. Like, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. But I think this is why I'm at least so sensitive to every single, even very mild seeming encroachment, because I just wonder... You know what types of things do we let the government get away with? And this is why I have a lot of faith in our court system. I have a lot of faith in our ability to recall elected officials and a lot of faith in our court system. And then when I see people and their rhetoric about you know, this court system is illegitimate, that's the thing that really bothers me because I think, okay, well, we have this very delicate checks and balances, push and pull type system in the US. And I place a lot of faith in that, but it makes me very concerned to see many of my fellow Americans not placing much faith in that anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Supreme Court uh, put an end to one of the more insane to me COVID uh, policies, the broad vaccine mandate for however many, thousands and thousands and thousands of workers. And the Supreme Court said no to that. So that was good to see. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: Bannon was found guilty last week for ignoring a subpoena that the House Select Committee on January 6 issued. The former political adviser to Donald Trump was convicted of two counts of contempt of Congress and he could face up to two years in jail. After the ruling, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard took to Twitter to point out that while Bannon was charged, other high-level government officials who have lied to Congress got off scot-free. Here's what she had to say.
8: No matter what you think or feel about Steve Bannon. The fact that he has been found guilty of contempt of Congress, yet others have faced no consequences at all. People like James Clapper, for example, sat before the U.S. Senate under oath and lied directly about an NSA program that was conducting mass collection on millions of Americans. Or John Brennan, for example, as CIA director. He spied on Senate staffers, lied about it, and also broke into Senate computers to read emails from whistleblowers to members of Congress. Now, both Clapper and Brennan kept their jobs and to this day still have faced no consequences at all what to speak of being charged and prosecuted and found guilty of the crimes that they committed. Now, this is just the latest example, unfortunately, of how our Department of Justice has become a political weapon, being used by those in power to go after their political enemies.
0: It's a good point. And not only are Brennan and Clapper never prosecuted or, or punished for their lies, they're, and they're not even disgraced. They're celebrated. They're regular fixtures on cable news. They're held up as experts on national security, despite you know the fact that they routinely violated Americans' uh, civil liberties. So I think Tulsi makes a great point here. Now, as to the underlying Steve Bannon matter, it, it does seem pretty clear that he defied this subpoena and Yes, you're go- like you're going to get prosecuted if you do that, and I think anyone in that situation w- would have been prosecuted. So I, I don't, I don't have a tremendous like <laughs> he he did what causes you to pot- potentially face a jail charge. So it's not really, it's not. I, I don't think they're they're treating him uniquely badly because he's being persecuted or something. Uh, maybe in other ways, but in this way, it doesn't quite seem like political persecution to be i'm I don't know if that's what he's alleging that it is, but it, it seems like just exactly how you would handle someone who behaves that way in that situation. What do you think?
2: Oh, I think I disagree with you. This does smack to me of kind of politicking um, with the DOJ. I mean, there are so many examples of people who they did not take up, you know, Mm -hmm. the contempt Um, caught uh, a charge against. And, um, you know, Bannon really does represent in a way the sort of beating heart of the Trumpist movement. Um, And I can't help but feel that this was such an error, not just because it seems so politically motivated to go after him so quickly in this way. I mean, really to to, um, fast track this trial, to fast track these charges, Um, but also, you know, just the way in which um, the January 6th committee already is seen as so partisan. It already is seen as a political attempt to prevent former President Trump from ever holding office again. I mean, this just really adds to that sense of persecution um, that people in that camp feel. And why add to that? I mean, to what end? Why feed their sense of persecution to where it's actually now the DOJ going after them? And that's irrespective of whether he, you know, was in contempt of, you know, the c- Congress or whatever it is. That that's sort of how I see it.
0: Hmm. I think I do disagree. I think he did. He, he is in contempt of Congress and he like he could have re- responded to the subpoena right and just pled the fifth, not given any answers to any questions asked of him. That would have been that option is there. They weren't going to, you know, they were going to torture him. They weren't going to waterboard him and, and force him to, to say things. He But he just did not respond to the subpoena. And this is what this is what can happen when you don't do that. So it feels like Maybe even in fact he wanted to be prosecuted in this way so that he can say, "Look, I'm being persecuted by you know the Biden administration or whatnot." Maybe that's like his play here because it seems to me like his actions were. This was the likely outcome of his actions. So now we're doing this, and now he can say, "Oh, I'm being persecuted." But you, okay, you could have responded to the subpoena. You could have just pled the fifth. Uh, yes, is you know, is this a little bit of a sideshow to kind of go after you know everyone connected to to the Trump years? Although I, I get that he's you know strongly associated with the MAGA movement, etc. But. This isn't like this isn't, you know, catching him in some mistruth and you know, having some kind of obstruction of justice, sort of like it's easy to go after anyone for that kind of thing. To, to my mind, anyway, could be wrong. Looks to me like this is a pretty straight up. <laughs> he ignored this subpoena and you can be prosecuted for doing that. And maybe that's what he wanted all along.
2: Um I mean I don't think anybody wants to go to jail but I also think it is a little bit immaterial about what he wanted it's it's more like the spectacle that this creates to people who are our fellow Americans, who, who have every right to be suspicious of institutions that have treated them poorly, who, you know, are watching our institutions increasingly mm-hmm. get co-opted by a faction of the far left. And then they see this man who is sort of, you know, a, the Steve Bannon's war room is a very important journalistic outlet. I mean, you, I don't agree with much of what he says, I mean, especially about Stop the Steal and so forth but if you want to know what the beating heart of the maga movement sounds like that you got to listen to that show and those people are our fellow americans and we we keep giving them i guess this is the point we keep giving them more and more reason to distrust the establishment when we should be trying to bring them back into the fold and behave in a way that is worthy of respect. And I, I think that this really is going to feed the worst elements of that. And I don't see why it was important. And I think many, many people have, you know, you know, ignored subpoenas and not been prosecuted by the DOJ. And so it does start to look like persecution to me.
0: Mm. Oh, well, we're, we, we, we disagree on this one. <laughs> um, yeah. And look, the, you know, the January 6th stuff is going on and on and on. I, I've said over and over again on the show that I, I don't think, we're getting a lot. We're getting new flavor, a little bit, you know, more details come to light, more, I think, you know, embarrassing information about Trump's mindset and literal actions uh, the day of. But there's this desire, certainly among you know, the, the people engaged in the January 6th hearings and also the mainstream media who, you know, follows every development with total uh, rapt attention to find someone to punish. For this or to prove that there was some kind of conspiracy or it was elaborately planned or Trump prior knowledge, it was deliberate. You know, when what I, what I saw when I was there and everything that's come out about it ever since has just has confirmed to me that this was a spontaneous mob eruption that was not planned, that was not something Trump wanted to happen, or, you know, not something that he, I mean, that you could say that he cause to happen in some kind of moral responsibility sense, but certainly not in the sense of strict um, legal incitement. But, uh, and, and nothing that I've seen has changed my mind about that. You know, what are your thoughts about uh, January 6th stuff at this point?
2: I'm very deeply mind divided. I am very, I, so again, I disagree with you. I, I, I have learned a lot, I have changed my mind about a lot of things at the same time. Um, I do think that um, the American people are not interested and no longer watching, mm-hmm. and this is not a top concern for them, and their concerns are extremely pressing. And so I'm very grossed out by the the press class's obsession with this sideshow. Um, I do think it's very deeply partisan. It's very highly produced. I do think the aim of this was to prevent Trump from being able to beat a democratic president in a a democratic way in the future. And I think that's very, very bad. At the same time, I have learned things from this that would prevent me from being able to vote for him. So I I, I feel so conflicted about it, Robbie, because on the one end, I feel like that was a very undemocratic thing to do, is to use the power of subpoena to expose things about a person so people wouldn't vote for him again, because you're worried that you can't beat him because he's a good candidate, right? But on the other hand, I feel like um, I did learn things that were extremely incriminating. I don't know. I'm not a legal expert. I can't say whether there's, it rises to the level of incitement or not. But I, I do feel that I, I learned things I'm glad to know. So I, I feel so conflicted about it.
0: Mm. Well, I think it has uh, the the most, the effect the hearings are having. You know, my understanding is uh, that conservative media or the people who run conservative media are even more convinced than they were before that Donald Trump should not and cannot be the Republican yes. presidential candidate next time. Yeah. I think there's even more so. There, this was already going on to some extent, but I think it's it's pretty clear now, like, no, they're they're or they're, they're They very much want to. They want DeSantis. They want to back DeSantis, um, and they're, I think, more courageous about doing that. No matter what the base wants, or viewers want, or readers want, they they think Trump is not a is not an acceptable choice. Uh, It's too much of a liability given what's come out, and uh, it's really got to be DeSantis, and they're going to back him. I think that was it. It was trending that way anyway, but this has made it um, this has made it much more, even more clear. But that that's the person that conservative media is going to get behind DeSantis.
2: It's not just the media. I mean, polling of conservatives, my own anecdotal, you know, I know a lot of yeah. conservatives, a lot of people who were, you know, extremely team MAGA, uh, you know, on, tr- on the Trump train are now to me speaking about DeSantis, um, at- including some Democrats.
0: <laughs> that's right. Wall Street Journal has turned tabloid, dishing on Tesla CEO Elon Musk's alleged affair with the wife of Google co-founder Sergey Brin. So the journal says the affair led to a divorce between Brin and his wife, Nicole Shanahan, and also a rupture in Musk and Brin's friendship.
2: Now, Musk has denied the allegation, saying this is total BS. Sergey and I are friends and we're at a party together last night. I've only seen Nicole twice in three years, both times with many other people around. Nothing romantic. Mm. Um, All right, Robbie, what do you think of this story? I'm sort of mind divided about it. I want to hear your take. (laughs) Well,
0: first of all, I don't really relish kind of gossipy, talking about people's marriages or personal difficulties. I mean, I hated Gawker that kind of trash. Um, I I have a high bar for thinking like this is even news and we do have to talk about it now. Okay, Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world and Google's a very important company. So it's possible this marital difficulty does, I guess, have policy implications. So then does clear, maybe clear some bar for us being able to talk about it. But I, I really do try to default toward, for these personal matters, it's their business, not ours. And I don't, you know, I don't want to subject people to that kind of, kind of thing. And I, I wasn't uh, actually when I first read the story, I thought, I, I presumed this, um, you know, this affair was known or something, or was, pre- and he's actually denying it, so that makes it kind of weirder. I, I so I, you don't know who he's deny, he's just straightforwardly denying it. Uh, I don't know what the Wall Street Journal is reporting for it is. It's probably pretty solid. The Wall Street Journal's a of a, of a very solid outlet so i i, I don't know and I, I it makes me uncomfortable to talk about because again i don't like to gossip about people in this way at all even famous people deserve privacy in my view in their private lives
2: I totally agree with you. I feel so aggrieved that I know about this. Just like I feel so aggrieved at having seen photos of him in his bathing suit on his yacht (laughs) last week. I just feel like there's so many really important conversations to have about Elon Musk. And I just don't care at all about his personal life. And yet we are constantly bombarded with You know stories about women he's impregnated and you know now this affair I feel like it's nobody's business and um you know I'm saying that as a person who like I love tabloids I watch the bachelor and the bachelorette religiously the current season is very good everybody should tune in like I am not above like enjoying myself some guilty pleasures there I don't even think they're guilty you know you got to get your entertainment where you get it but this is somebody's personal life who actually to me this is such a distraction again this is kind of like the whole twitter story like Elon Musk is involved in some shady business with the Chinese, and we really need to be talking about that. And actually, The Wall Street Journal does a really good job reporting on that. So I feel like this was maybe a little bit of a misstep for them, something they felt was just too juicy not to report out. But, you know, whether it's true or not, I just feel aggrieved that I know about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And some of these are hard calls, I guess, from a journalistic standpoint. You know, if you cut, let's say you're a publication, you come into possession of solid reporting that this, a fair habit, which again is not with some random person, where then I I would absolutely say it is outside the bounds of news. Or in in my judgment, I'm sure there are plenty of news outlets that would disagree. But it's it's alleged to have been with this wife of this other very important tech executive, you know, whatever, Google and Tesla or other Elon Musk properties could have relationships that are affected by this, which kind of does make it newsworthy and worth uh, potentially talking about, I, again, I might still say no, because I, I really don't, I really like to default to giving people a lot of, uh, a lot of privacy to work through these things. And may, maybe it's wrong. There's a possibility this reporting is wrong. Musk is, is just totally denying it, said it didn't happen. Um, so I, I don't know if we'd take that for whatever it's worth.
2: Yeah, you know, and you know, what happens between a married couple is extremely private and extremely privileged and extremely important. And it's really, really nobody's business. And does it matter if, you know, Elon Musk fell out with Google over an affair over like he doesn't like the color of the guy's tie, right? We wouldn't report on that people make decisions for all sorts of personal reasons and it's just you know I, it, to me it just really I'm not sure I really don't feel that this yeah. rose to the level of being in the public interest. Are
0: we reaching like peak Elon Musk? He's making cameos in like every <laughs> story. His cameo in the Amber Heard Johnny Depp <laughs> trial that, that proves we're living in a simulation, right? That just breaks totally breaks the fact that this is reality that he had he had a small role in that whole thing.
2: Although You probably didn't watch much of that trial. I did, as I said. Enjoy my smut. Uh, He did not show up to testify for Amber Heard, while another celebrity whose name came up, Kate Moss, did show up to testify on behalf of uh, Johnny Depp. So, you know, make of that what you will.
0: Yeah. (laughs) certainly certainly make of that so yeah i i don't know it's uh it's it's interesting obviously the guy is just all over our news feed I well literally who <laughs> was was considering taking control of twitter this you know, right. very important tool for for journalists and those of us who are live miserable online existences. Um, but not not happening, uh, sadly. Have have there been any, any uh, updates? To, have you revised your view of uh, how this uh, lawsuit is proceeding—the Twitter and and uh, Elon lawsuit?
2: No, I, I I think it's very interesting and something really worth um, keeping our eye on because I think it you know more will come out that will reveal whether my take was correct that he never intended to buy it at all yeah. and that it was just a big distraction from problems at Tesla and so so I'm 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 following it closely but nothing yet that I have to report. I have to
0: say I'm coming I'm probably coming around more to your way of thinking about it. You're <laughs> you're uh, you're you're swaying me a little. And We did have a uh, I think me and uh, Ryan I think last week I can't remember who else was with me. We talked to. Uh, someone who was following the uh the the lawsuit very closely seemed to think that it's uh it's that Twitter has the the better uh case here, which I, I think rings true to me at this point so
2: but again i think even if elon musk loses i mean the biggest penalty he could face is a billion dollars which pales in comparison to what he made by selling that tesla stock to buy twitter in the first place so i don't think he would mind paying a billion dollars at this point really so he's Mm. sort of in a he's he's very brilliantly negotiated another win-win situation Mm. for himself
0: Smart guy. All right, well, we'll keep updating you all and wh- whatever the recent... This one I did not see coming. Again, I don't know that this is legitimate news or, or, or good uh, journalism practice. I'll be interested to see if, I guess, if other outlets are able to verify it, even though, again, I'm, I'm loath to acknowledge that this is something that should be talked about. But, uh, but we'll see if it turns out that reporting that he has denied um, is solid. And then tomorrow on Rising, we'll discuss why some on the left are organizing to ditch Biden in 2024. Bacha, it was wonderful to see you, and uh, you'll be with us next week, I believe.
2: Thank you so much for having me, and I'll see you all next week, yes.
0: Great, great. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and also catch us on the Plex TV app, another place to watch all your favorite rising content. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye.